Hello, this is Griff Rhys-Jones. The RNI is something absolutely vital to anybody who uses the water. It's interesting to try and work it out, really, how old I must have been. But since my sister was only sort of 18 months younger than me, if that, I mean, she and she was still being, you know, trundled around in a pram. And then my dad stuck me in the, <laughs> in the Enterprise dinghy that he'd made in a sort of roof space at the hospital where he worked. And um, it was a heavy old thing. And uh, my brother and I used to sit there in these huge Kapok sort of life jackets, you know, which oh, held us like this, just waiting endlessly while there was a sort of... Like that with the sails going, and finally my mother and father, in a fretful state, would sort of push the boat into the water. And then my mother would be d deputed to go off with my sister and meet us in West Wittering. And then, uh, so I was, I was always involved in sailing and being on the water and, uh, and all the principles of, uh, of uh, instruction that, that come with that. And my dad went on from boat to boat to boat. We moved to East Anglia, which was even more um, waterlogged. And, uh, <laughs> and then I put it behind me. I got to adult life and I found that I didn't need to own a boat. I could rent one. And that was great. Uh, and so every now and again, I'd jump on a boat and go sailing still. Still feeling sailing in my blood. In fact, I moved here where we are now um, in the days when East Anglia was sort of remote. I had a little boat here. And when my children were very small, um, I'd do the same to them, because that's the way it is, as various poets and philosophers have noted, that we just hand these things down. So my children were then made to get into my little boat, and when the tide was up in the creek, just at the bottom of the garden, we'd sail across the estuary, uh, because uh, the tide was in. This is a very muddy area of the world, but the tide was in. There was a sort of semi-beach where we could go for a swim. And then uh, we had to hurry back because there's no water in the estuary and we had to sort of find our way back to, the, to our little sort of berth um, before the water all flooded out. And then one day I bought a slightly bigger boat, a Drascombe Lugger. And instead of just crossing over the estuary, I said, we're going on an adventure. You know, we're not going to come back in with the tide. We're, what we're going to do is go on down the river as far as Harwich to Shotley, where there's a marina. And you have to lock in to the Shotley marina. I had, the, I had the two kids in the boat and the, uh, the man came out to do the lock and lock us in. And we're coming in in this quite a small Drascombe lug and he looked down at me and uh, I said, we've come from We've, we've come from Holbrook. And he said, what, you mean just the next village along? And I said, that's right. Most of the people in that marina had come across from Holland. But anyway, it was, we, he was impressed, we were impressed. But, but that sort of sense of adventure in boats has always been in my, in my blood, yeah. I must be aware of various uh, interesting sort of, uh, I mean, if you're around in the coastal regions, you know, you're aware of exciting sort of um, launch pads for uh, <laughs> lifeboats, you know, and lifeboats. And I have been, and goodness knows when this was, I've been in West Mersey when the, when the maroon went up. 
the signal went up, there was a big bang, and uh, suddenly people are rushing down and getting into the boat. We were there very early in the season, it would have been about April. And what was notable about that was that somebody gone out in a dinghy uh, and it had been very, very cold. They capsized and uh, they had to get the lifeboat out to get them back, which they did in West Mersey. And uh, then my father uh, was recruited to help this guy who would uh, virtually drowned because he was a chest physician, so he was a doctor. All I remember is, is my father tying this guy, uh, got a ladder. He organised a ladder to come and turned him upside down, tied to the ladder so they could drain his lungs and, and give, gave him artificial respiration and saved his life. So um, it was a rather bizarre thing to see your dad suddenly in action like this, sort of triage, you know, sort of there he was doing it all. And, um, but also the, the, uh, the lifeboat. And I've had uh, associations since then with um, West Mersey, because my brother lived in West Mersey. That's where my dad was a member of the club there and everything. And that's where we used to be on that hard, and that's where I used to um, spend my winters, um, winter weekends, uh, under a wooden boat scraping barnacles off it. So for those of you who think that just all people with yachts, you know, spend their time drinking gin and tonics. That's not exactly what it was. <laughs> My dad kept his boat there and they asked me back a few years ago to launch um, a new rib there, which I went down to do. And I joined the crew and they, we just went out to take the boat, you know, a fast rib around the harbour a bit and then bring it back. And I, I, I think the thing that everybody sort of needs to be aware of really is that this is a service which is which is entirely funded by a voluntary contribution and, and volunteers who do the work as well. And it's really, really vitally important that we support it, especially if we sail in these waters, that we need to do what we can to, to not pass that box by. I haven't done enough recently, but I, I love uh, passages with good friends I haven't done enough of those, really. I've been too busy, so I tend to sort of pick up uh, sailing when something's arrived, and I got a racing bug, so I spend a lot of time racing now. Um, and racing, we just, because we've got heavy boats, we spend our time, you know, hoping that the wind picks up and it becomes <laughs> just windier. Um, which uh, it is odd, because actually, I think, Libby, Libby Purvis, who, uh, who also has long experience boats, knows that there's always a nagging feeling about uh, the sea. If you've sailed a lot and done some quite long uh, passages, you know that things can get, you know, demanding, let's put it that way. I sailed from once, it was October, and we needed to deliver the boat to Copenhagen. And the boat was in Jotterburg, because we'd sailed all the way to St. Petersburg, and then come back through the and we'd left it in Jotterburg. And I needed to get another gap, I got a gap, and this was a sort of uh, old 45 foot leaky wooden boat. And we, <laughs> we set off, uh, uh, in the last of the light, really. That was just the timing of it, and sailed through the night. It was a 24-hour sort of journey down. 
and uh, it's an odd feeling. It's not just respect. It really is quite just how, let's hope, this is manageable. Because as the night goes on, uh, and we're sailing with three other guys who are helping me do it, and they'd all told me that they were experienced sailors, but they got very ill. That we hit pretty bad weather. You could say, you're mad, go in. You can't go in. There's nowhere, there's nowhere that's, that's, you just, you're better off just heading, keeping going through the night. But then when you're standing next to people and you can see that they've gradually become very ill as a result of being on the boat, I mean, seasick, you do, you know that you're the one who's essentially going to have to sail this boat uh, through that, those conditions and through most of the night. And if you get down below, you're going to be called up again pretty quick just to control the boat and get it, thing which you do. It's, it's, it's a lesson, in the, again, in preparation and knowing exactly what you're doing. It wasn't their fault that they got ill, but you know what I mean? It sort of like suddenly puts a lot more responsibility on you. So we make the passage and th by the next day the winds died, luckily, and we, we make our way into Copenhagen. And you do think, oh, <laughs> oh, God, oh, 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 oh thank goodness, we're here. <laughs> but also you've had one of the most extraordinary experiences of your life. And luckily everything in the boat was sound and held and was good. But I know from the things I've been through that the things I went through were mild. You know, I've never been in a force 10, 12. I've been in sort of force eight, force nine, you know, I've been out there, but I've never been in the real extremes when the sea becomes a place of frenzy. You know, the noise, that's the thing. I wouldn't, I would find it. And once you've been in it, it becomes exhausting and slightly terrifying. You know, just the extremes of the way that the weather suddenly comes and sits on you and just blows and blows and blows and blows and blows. So I don't envy people in any way when they have to go out in real storms and attend to people. So although what the service that's provided by the RNOI has, has leapt exponentially from the Grace Darling sort of days of jumping in a rowing boat and, and rowing out to help somebody, to amazing uh, craft, fantastic safety operations, real brilliance, uh, coordination with the Coast Guard and that, it is still, in essence, the Grace Darling model. I mean, it, it, it happens because there are people in coastal regions who care enough to volunteer to, to serve, and there are uh, enough people to, to give money to support them. So. It's like an emergency service, like the ambulance or the, or the police or, 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 or the fire service, but it's, it's paid for by us and, and needs our support. Hello, it's Dee Kafari here, and you've been listening to part of the RNLI's 200 Voices collection. To hear more remarkable stories, head to rnli.org forward slash 200 voices or subscribe to the RNLI wherever you get your podcast from. Thank you. Two Hundred Voices is an adventurous audio limited production for the RNLI.